0: Welcome to the World of Critical Care. Today, we will be talking about crystalloids. Now, the last episode was on colloids, and we specifically spent a lot of time talking about albumin and how albumin is one of the critical proteins in our plasma, how it regulates what we call colloidal osmotic pressure. So as a brief overview, our blood slowing through our arterial system and it moves into our capillary beds. Now, as blood is on the arterial side of the capillary bed, the pressure is very high. That pressure inside the vessel pushing against the vessel walls is called hydrostatic pressure. Now, water is able to move through the vessels. And so this is our semi-permeable membrane. And because the pressure inside the vessels is greater than the pressure outside the vessels, which is called our colloidal osmotic pressure. So that colloidal osmotic pressure is in competition against our hydrostatic pressure. Now, that colloidal osmotic pressure, it's caused by the protein concentration in our blood and specifically our plasma, And that water wants to naturally move inside of our vessels to create an equilibrium between places of high protein concentration and low protein concentration. And remember, the interstitial space, the space outside of our vessels, has a very low protein concentration. And the reason is that proteins do not easily move through the vessel walls without a specific transport system. And so because of that, when we're on the arterial side and that hydrostatic pressure is very high, as we go into the capillary beds, water naturally moves out of our vessels. But as we move to the venous side of the capillary beds, now our hydrostatic pressure is much lower. And because of that, Now our oncotic pressure, so that colloidal osmotic pressure, tends to win the battle. And water moves back into the vascular space. Now what's important about this is we can give colloids to help regulate that colloidal osmotic pressure. But we can also provide rehydration and volume expansion by increasing our hydrostatic pressure. And that is what happens when we administer crystalloids. So let's take a step back now and talk about what makes a crystalloid a crystalloid. Our most common crystalloids are solutions such as sodium chloride. We'll have lactated ringers. We can have, sometimes we might have a half in S. We talk about a hypertonic solution. And we often are using the term solution. So let's take that step and say, what makes a solution? In a solution, we have a solute, we have a solvent, and it creates a solution. In crystalloids, our solvent is water. Water provides an exceptional medium to be a solvent. Now, the reason with water and the value of it are the hydrogen. The hydrogen allows for this perfect situation to interact with other polar molecules to create disassociation in the hydrogen bonding. So because of this, substances such as sodium chloride, we have our potassium, we have our magnesium, we have things like lactate, CO2. Water provides this perfect medium to bring these solutes into solution. And so water plays a critical role in the human body as a medium for a wide variety of critical metabolic reactions and transport of so many critical components in our bloodstream. Now, water is pretty interesting. About 60% of our body weight is water. Now, in infants, it's a little bit higher, and in the elderly, it's a little bit lower. Which is why, in these specific populations, looking at our fluid status is incredibly important. Now, when we think about water, we need to think about where it's distributed in the body. So, we take somebody, 60% of their weight is water, but about two thirds of that is in the intracellular fluid, so the ICF. That's quite incredible. That water is absolutely essential to maintain homeostasis, and in, in, in particular because of the way in which it provides that solvent to have a lot of our critical nutrients and our metabolic reactions occur inside the cell. And so because of that, two-thirds of our water is in the intracellular fluid. Now, the other one-third is in the extracellular fluid. What's important to remember is the extracellular fluid can then be subdivided again. Within the extracellular fluid, we have the intravascular fluid, so this is the fluid in our bloodstream, but then we also have the interstitial fluid, so this is the fluid outside our bloodstream, but it's not within our cells. Now, the interstitial space accounts for about two-thirds of the extracellular fluid, while the intravascular space accounts for approximately one-third of the extracellular fluid. So, quick review. About 60% of our body weight is water. Two-thirds of it are inside our cells. A third of it is outside our cells. Now, that third that's outside our cells, about two-thirds of it is in the interstitial space, and a third is in our intravascular space. Now, it's important to remember that interstitial space tends to have low protein concentrations, while the intravascular space has a much higher protein concentration. That's important as we think about rehydration and volume expansion as we discussed in the colloid episode. Now, as we move into crystalloids, crystalloids are administered directly into our intravascular space, which it's important to think about because our intravascular space in this subdivision of where water is in the body plays the smallest total percent. But depending on the type of crystalloid that is used, the tonicity of the crystalloid, the osmolality of the crystalloid, the volume and the rate that can greatly influence how we can direct water within the body, within the intravascular system, but also ways in which we can encourage water to move into or out of the intracellular fluid, but also the interstitial space. Now, to understand how we can do this requires understanding a few terms. One of the first terms to think about is osmolarity. We often see milliosmoles as something discussed when we look at especially like a lactated ringer solution or a sodium chloride solution. So osmolarity is the number of osmoles of solute per one liter of solution. Now this is different than molarity because molarity is moles divided by liter. And that's, that's important because if we take sodium chloride, for example, sodium chloride, when we initially mix it into solution, is sodium and chloride. But as it goes into solution and we get the disassociation, we actually have a sodium ion and we have a chloride anion. And so we want to think about that in the fact that that actually is two particles in solution. And so the osmolarity is our total number of those particles in a liter of solution. And when we think back to that oncotic pressure, it was all based upon the total number of particles that we had in solution, and that would create that osmotic pressure differential. And in another way, we're having a similar effect. And so often, When we look at a half-NS or an NS, you know, a standard 0.9% sodium chloride solution, we often think of it in terms of milliosmoles. Now, the important part about this is that this can induce that osmotic pressure. And so another term that's often used is tonicity. We talk about a hypotonic solution, an isotonic solution a hypertonic solution. So tonicity is that induced osmotic pressure by the osmolarity of the solution. So if we think about it, we look at the human body and its normal concentration of, let's say, sodium. Typically in the budstream, the sodium concentration is approximately 285 to 300 milliosmoles. And so if we give a 0.9% solution of sodium chloride, it's approximately 300 milliosmoles. So what that means is unless we are in a deficit state or we're in a state of overabundance for some reason, so we're either hyponatremic or hypernatremic, when we give that isotonic solution, what that means is the sodium and the chloride solution has the same equivalent as what's in our bloodstream. And what that means is we're not inducing any kind of atypical osmotic pressure gradient. Now, if we were to give a hypotonic solution... So let's say 0.45% sodium chloride. This is often half NS. The sodium chloride, so the osmolality of that solution, is lower. A hypertonic solution, the osmolality is much higher than normal. This then can induce fluid shift changes. So now we can think about things in a few ways. Based on the tonicity of a solution, we can move water from the intravascular space into the intracellular space. We can also then increase our intravascular volume simply by administering more volume of a crystalloid. And then, though this is often not what we want, if we give a significant, sudden volume, in the intravascular space, it can often lead to edema and swelling because the hydrostatic pressure has increased so much, it's now overloading or overwhelming our iconic pressure, and so water tends to move into that interstitial space. And so that leads into one of the common issues. Too much crystalloid can suddenly lead to our edema, our swelling, our peripheral edema. We can get pulmonary edema. We can even have fluid in areas like the pericardial sac. And so these are the ways in which crystalloids function. So now let's talk some basics. Let's talk why would we use crystalloids. Crystalloids are an exceptional way to provide quick and easy and inexpensive rehydration for individuals who are in a dehydrated state. They're great for maintenance fluid, in particular when we're having a lot of insensible losses. And so, you know, typically we can look at the in and out on patients. But sometimes patients, they're having losses, whether it be through sweating, they have a fever, whether it be through respiration. There are certain ways in which we can't quite account for the INO exactly correctly. Some patients have poor PO intake, and so we're needing to supplement with some maintenance fluid. You could have a post-operative patient. You could have a patient coming out of surgery or coming off cardiopulmonary bypass. We can have a lot of different situations in which fluid resuscitation can be really important, in particular intravascularly. And that's where crystalloids play their primary role, is in that intravascular resuscitation. It's a quick and easy way for us to increase that hydrostatic pressure. So whether this be a patient whose blood pressure we're seeing a symptomatic aspect because of that pressure's dropping too quickly. Adding more volume is a quick and easy way to provide a solution. And so crystalloids are often our first-line therapy in situations where we need to do rapid volume expansion or we need to do some sort of fluid, either maintenance or rehydration. The most common crystalloid used is normal saline. Now, normal saline has some advantages and disadvantages to something such as lactated ringers. In my next episode, we're going to jump into lactated ringers and do more of a comparison as to why you would or wouldn't use it. But the advantage of normal saline is that in general, it's a fairly inexpensive crystalloid and that we can also with different percent solutions help move water in or out of cells. For example, we have a patient who has cerebral edema. So they have swelling in their brain. We can administer a hypertonic solution, like a 3% saline solution. And because of that, because of that high tonicity of that solution, what happens is, remember, water moves from places of high concentration to low. And so because of that, water tends to move from the intracellular space and moves out of that space because of the high sodium concentration that we've induced because of that hypertonic solution. Now, conversely, we might use a hypotonic solution, so a 0.45% saline solution. Now, that one-half NS solution tends to have the inverse effect, so the low tonicity. So because of that, we tend to have water move inside our cells because now the sodium concentration tends to be a bit higher inside the cells, and so the water moves from the extracellular space, the high water concentration, to the space now of lower water concentration. Now, that has a particular concern because that can lead to cell lysis if we're not careful with watching our intracellular versus extracellular fluid Levels, and that's actually why a lot of one-half NS solutions tend to add a little five percent dextrose. Is it actually increases that tonicity a touch without adding any kind of sodium? And so this is great for maintenance fluid or for patients where we don't want to increase their sodium levels too much. We just are just raising that osmolality because remember it's all about the total particles in that solution. And so we can better regulate a little bit our fluid status. Some of our primary concerns with crystalloids in particular often are related to how much and the rate at which they're administered. One of the advantages of them is that they're very quickly administered. But the problem is they often, if their hydrostatic pressure increases too much, it just leads to third space swelling. And so that's a common issue in particular when you think of issues like sepsis. You have rapid septic shock, so you maybe administer, instead of a lactated ringer, say you were to administer multiple liters of saline, you can have rapid, sudden interstitial swelling, and it can often lead to pulmonary edema. Another issue is that saline can lead to metabolic acidosis. So saline solutions typically are about 55 pH. So remember, normal human body pH is 7.35 to 7.45. And so sudden rapid administration of high volumes of sodium chloride can also lead to metabolic acidosis. Our other concern we talked about but was hemolysis with sudden, again, we're creating those sudden fluid shifts. And so if we have too much saline suddenly going into the intravascular space, even if it's an isotonic solution, it can potentially induce that hypotonic state in the intravascular space, leading again to rapid fluid swelling and lysis. And in particular, it could happen even with red blood cells, which is another concern. Another thought to consider is the dilution effect of normal saline. And in particular, when it's administered with blood products, Now, this is something that you start to think about in terms of its effect on colloids. When we administer a large amount of crystalloids, there are no proteins in that. And so that naturally dilutes our albumin levels, our plasma levels. And because of that, it can decrease our oncotic pressure. And so if we've given huge boluses of sodium chloride, it does increase our hydrostatic pressure, so that, that can be a good thing. Sometimes we're looking for that. But on the flip side, it sometimes can dilute our protein, so it d- decreases our oncotic pressure. And so then because of that, we can end up having even worsening interstitial swelling, and it can potentially lead to a decrease in our hydrostatic pressure because we're losing water into... The third space. And a similar thing can happen when we're, when we, let's say we're in a place where we're having rapid blood loss. If we're already in a low hemoglobin state, and then we suddenly give large amounts of crystalloids, we can have an even further diluting effect, which is always something that you want to be careful about when giving crystalloids. And so I think this episode hopefully provided just a generic overview of how crystalloids work and what they do. The next episode will be specifically on lactated ringers, how that solution works, because I think it's a solution that provides a critical role in the critical care world. But then I'm also going to then start comparing it to NS and why we would or would not use normal saline versus lactated ringers. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to the next episode.